Well, this morning our text is from Psalm 119, 89 through 96. This is one stanza among many in Psalm 119, the, uh, the longest of the Psalms, the longest chapter in the Bible, and all of it uh, dedicated to praising the Lord for his word. Uh, this, like uh, every like uh, every one of the stanzas in Psalm 119, uh, each one is, um, is uh, marked by a letter in the um, Hebrew alphabet. And uh, so each line of, uh, of each stanza in Psalm 119 begins with, uh, with that letter. Um, so we're returning to Psalm 119 after taking a break in... Uh, in December, and by the end of the year, by Thanksgiving, uh, we will have uh, walked through, as a church, all of Psalm 119. And uh, today, uh, we are looking at Psalm 119, starting in verse 89. It marks the beginning of a new year uh, for us, and uh, the beginning of uh, of a new year uh, marks a new beginning. For months, the days have been growing shorter, the nights have, uh, have increasingly lengthened, and at least to our own experience, as uh, we sit and live here in the northern hemisphere, the world has grown colder and darker almost by day, until the shortest day of the year came on December 21st, uh, and now we mark the beginning of a new year, a new beginning, a new regeneration. Winter solstice has passed, and now the days have begun to grow longer and brighter once again. Warmth will slowly begin to return. Our bones will begin to thaw, and soon enough we'll be looking forward to the new life in the blooming wildflowers of the spring. Our creator God has not finished working, has he? In the new year, we see an illustration and a real-life image of how God, who breathed life into creation and spoke it into being by his word, continues day by day and year by year to breathe new life to sustain his creation that he made. In him, we live and move and have our being. God demonstrated his sovereignty and his sovereign authority by his act of creating the universe out of nothing, by the power of his word alone, according to his eternal decree. And he still demonstrates his sovereign authority by sustaining the universe by the same word and the same decree. God is sovereign. He governs all things by his word. All of his creation is his subject. He is not subject to his creation. Creation is subject to him. His word is eternal and it is unchangeable. It is the solid rock foundation of the universe and it cannot be moved. He is the shaper of creation and not the other way around. In, uh, as we look at Psalm 119, 89 through 96, uh, we remember that Psalm 119 is an extended song of praise for his word. But every stanza is different. 
and approaches God's word from a different uh, perspective and says something unique about God's word, how it shapes us and what it means for us. That 12 stanza, starting in verse 89, praises God for his immutable sovereignty of his eternal decree. The eternity and unchangeability of God's sovereign word carries implications for his authority over creation and for our faith as his people. The psalmist touches on both of those themes. And then in the latter division of the stanza, the psalmist responds in faith and looks to God's sovereign word for delight in affliction, renewal of life, and salvation. We'll see that the first and the last verse form sort of bookends, and then we'll divide the central portions of the text in into two divisions and, um, and uh, see the principle and the application in faith. So verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 89 states the premise. It is the, the first of the bookends or the brackets, uh, but it states the premise from which every other part of the stanza flows. God is sovereign. His word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 46.10 says that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So God not only predicts the future, he declares it. It is active. It's not passive. It's, it's not simply an observation from God. It is a declaration. He declares his purposes according to the counsel of his will. And those purposes are accomplished. Can't be stopped according to his word. God's word then, when we speak of God's word, God's word encompasses not only God's comprehensive purposes for the world, but the power to bring his purposes into effect. For God to declare a thing is to bring it into reality. The psalmist uses language that emphasizes two fundamental truths concerning God's eternal decree. It is forever, and it is firmly fixed. Think about what it means that God's word is forever. It is eternal. It is declared from before creation began, from before time began, God's decree was and is and will be eternal. It's absolute. It means that what God declares now and what we see him declare in his word, what he declares for the future, it's not a result or a consequence of current events. God doesn't react to what he reads in the morning newspaper. His decrees are not evolving and adapting with the times. God knew the times. He knew what would be because he declared it from before time began. God's decrees are forever. They are eternal. He is now and always here and forever enacting and bringing into being that which he decreed from eternity. 
he declared the end from the beginning. His word is also, we read, firmly fixed in the heavens. It does not change. The fact that it is fixed in the heavens means, and, and it really is an, an image, isn't it? You, you can imagine that word being above us. It's above and, and it's beyond what we can reach. So God's word, the fact that it's fixed in the heavens, it says something about God's transcendency. He's transcendent. God is decreeing and he's acting on the world from the outside, so to speak, from beyond time, from beyond the um, uh, beyond existence. God is not, this is because God is not dependent on creation. He's not dependent on creation or anything that is in it. So uh, God is self-existent. He is totally independent from and apart from his creation. And he acts on creation from the outside. That doesn't mean that God is apart from us. What it means is that God transcends us. So he is, while he is present with us, he, he, he is imminently with us, present. And we believe that as we gathered for worship today, that the Holy Spirit is with us and present with us even now in a powerful and an immediate way. And yet at the same time, when God decrees, he is not decreeing from just one limited perspective, as, as if he's, he's being a- acted on. He's a, a part of his own uh, creation. God is king of creation. Creation is his subject. He's not subject to creation. So his word is, fi- is not fixed in some isolated corner of the earth, but in the heavens, where it is above all and beyond all. That's the point. Those decrees do not and cannot change. And why would they need to change? God knew the end from the beginning because he purposed it and he spoke it into being by his word. The psalmist uh, is attentive, uh, attentive here to the stability of God's word as a foundation for the psalmist, for us, for all of creation. Verses 90 and 91 teach us what that means, not only for creation in general, but for God's people. Verses 90, uh, the first line of verse 90 simply says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. It's a very simple statement with uh, profound meaning in the context of the psalm. We speak of God's faithfulness as a sort of attribute of his character, and that's a right way to Uh, speak of God's faithfulness. God is as good as his word. He follows through with with what he says. He keeps his promises. But God's faithfulness is really much more than that. It's his very essence. It is is who he is. It is uh, grounded in his divinity, his eternity. He is faithful to his promises because by the act of, of declaring his purposes, just by declaring what will be, he accomplishes what will be. 
When God says, let there be light, there's light. When he declares the end from the beginning, that end is done. It's fixed. And it can't be moved. There's no question that God will be faithful to his people not only today, but also tomorrow and for all tomorrows forever. Because he's eternal. Because he's powerful. Because he has himself declared the end from the beginning. And because he has declared it, he sees it, he knows it, and we can count on it. In the second line of verse 90, uh, the psalmist extends God's sovereignty not just to his people, but to all creation. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Verse 91 expands on that idea. And it says, by your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. All things. God's power over creation is not passive, but it is active and it is direct. This passage, it refutes and obliterates any idea that God made the world and then withdrew his hand to allow history to unfold apart from his decree. So when verse 90 says that you've established the earth and it stands fast, verse 91 tells us how it stands fast. It's by God's appointment. Because all things are his servants. He makes it stand fast. He made it and he makes it stand fast. He is the creator not only then but now and forever. Verse 90 speaks of God's creation. He established the world. But not only did he create it, it continues to stand fast now. He made the world by his hand and he has not withdrawn it. The very reason the world stands fast is taught to us in verse 91. By your appointment, they stand. God's sovereignty does not have any territorial limits. There are no borders to the jurisdiction of his kingdom. All things are your servants. His creation of the world and his sustaining, directing, and governing the world now are by the same power and, in a real sense, the same act. The eternal decree of God to declare the end from the beginning. His word created the world and his eternal decree sustains the world and governs it from beginning to end. He's got the whole world in his hand. What a precious comfort that is. Sometimes, I, this is, this is a, a, a confession. Sometimes, um, I'm uh, very tempted to daydream about how I think things could have or should have been. And I, I do, and, and I'm drawn to it, and sometimes I give in to that temptation, and I imagine what if this piece was here and that piece was there and this had happened differently, and I think about that. And um, that's, that's a temptation. I don't know if I'm the only one. I'm probably not the only one, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm drawn into that. But the reality is, if God is who he says he is, then any alternate history that I can imagine, it's a downgrade. God's purposes are perfect. His purposes for what he has accomplished 
is accomplishing and will accomplish in my life, it, it is according to his eternal and perfect decree. And I cannot make that better. can't improve on it. Those purposes of God could not be changed except to make them worse. To change them is to make them less perfect and less reliable, less trustworthy. And that's why uh, no matter what pop fiction or sci-fi movies or uh, uh, comic books say, there could never be any alternate reality. And I mean that in, in a real and absolute sense. If, uh, if you uh, like to imagine science, uh, science fiction and, and uh, you like to imagine um, the, the, the possibility of, of the universe, uh, you can rule out the possibility of, uh, of alternate or other universes uh, because God created the world and he sustains the world according to his own perfect, eternal, and unchangeable decree. To make that decree different is to make it less perfect and to make God less perfect. So um, is there some scientific uh, Im- imagination about uh, alternate realities? No. I don't believe there is. God made the world, and he made it because it was according to his sovereign will and his perfect eternal decree. It's true, then, that God ordains things for a reason. People say, well, you know, and sometimes people who, who are, are, are not religious or hardly religious at all or, or just, you know, have some vague sense of spirituality, sometimes people say that I, I believe things happen for a reason. It's true, it's true, uh, things happen for a reason. They happen for a purpose. They happen according to God's purpose. But what God has decreed is not only for a reason. What God ordains is right. And it is according to his perfect and eternal purposes. We don't see always those purposes. But we trust in God's purposes. And that's why the sovereign power of God's word is a blessing for his people. And the psalmist uh, in the following verses outlines some of, the, uh, some of the grounds and the reasons for that blessing. First, it is the blessing of joy in affliction. And, and not only joy, but delight. Verse 92 says, If your law had not been my delight... I would have perished in my affliction. No, necessarily here, the psalmist is saying, your law was my delight. It was my delight, even though I had such affliction that if I hadn't um, held your law as my delight, then I would have perished. There are many senses in which God's word gives us peace and even delight in affliction. The psalmist talks about an affliction that is severe enough to bring death, in whatever sense that might be, whether it's the literal sense of physical death or just in the figurative sense of utter and absolute despair. Yet the psalmist, despite that affliction, delights in the law. Not the law of Moses in, in in the sense of, uh, of uh, the law of, of God's righteous commandments um, as a covenant of works, but 
The psalmist is referring to the fullest sense of God's sovereign word. When he talks about the law here, he's talking about the word of God, his precepts, commandments, and testimonies, including, above all, the law of faith and the promises of God. That delight in God's word is echoed again in verse 95. Verses 92 and and 95 sort of frame this latter division of, uh, of the stanza. Verse 95 says, The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. The psalmist treasures the word more than he fears the evil intentions of his wicked enemies. The delight that he finds in God's word is more powerful than any earthly danger that he can encounter. There's a direct sense. And and as we said, there's multiple senses in which God's word gives us peace and joy in affliction. One of those is a very direct sense. That when you open the word of God, it is a delight. That if, if you are in the midst of affliction, you can find peace and you can find joy by opening God's word, by the work of the Holy Spirit. That God's word is a means of grace for you. It is a means of experiencing uh, in a supernatural way the, the presence of God. Then that's true whether you're reading a, a verse that has direct application for what you're, uh, what, what you're going through, but it's also true just by being in the presence of the Holy Spirit as he is working through his word in your heart. Simply reading and hearing his word as we're doing right now. You know that the Holy Spirit is, is with us. And there's a supernatural work that's involved when we gather together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. That the Holy Spirit is able to work a a joy and a delight in your heart just by hearing his word. It is communion with God. It is knowing God as he reveals himself in his word. So that's one sense. There's another sense as well. A more general sense. The knowledge that the decrees of God are sovereign gives us peace in every affliction as we know that we are safe in his hands. So that's a way in which the truth of God's word and the truth about God's word, its sovereignty, its power, that also is something that delights us even in the midst of affliction. That we can say, God's word is a delight to me because I know that what I'm going through now is is for a purpose, that God has ordained it for my good and for his glory. And yet there's another sense as well. And I think this one may be highest of all. God's word is where we find the promise of salvation. So when... Everything else is turmoil and affliction and misery. The saving promises of God's word stand as our firm foundation and are a delight to our souls that are greater and more profound than any earthly misery. That's that's what verse 93 says refers to when the psalmist says to God, by your precepts you have given me 
life. This is another saying in this psalm that is deep and rich with meaning. By your precepts you have given me life. You know that you were created by the power of the word of God in a literal sense that God uh, spoke you into being by his power, by the power of his decree you were made as all things in creation were made. You were his creature, his child, his creation. He spoke you into being. So by his word, by his uh, precepts, he gave you life in an earthly sense. He breathed life into us by his sovereign decree. But God also sustains us, breathing new life into us daily. Uh, Just like God created and not only pre- created the world, but continues to sustain it and brings daily new life and renewal, it's by God's power that we wake for every new day and draw life with every new breath. I find it useful to think about this in a regular way. You know, without, without even pondering it, you suck in breath, and the air gives you oxygen that... Uh, that uh, um, sustains your, your life. And it functions the way it's supposed to. The oxy- uh, oxygen goes into your uh, bloodstream and, and provides your brain um, with, uh, with the, the blood and the life that it needs. But you know that that doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to work. It is the very creative power of God that allows your body to function the way that it is supposed to every day. You can eat food. And we know how the basic idea of how that works is your your body kind of does its work to draw sustenance from the food that you eat. It doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to. Your body has a way of healing from scrapes and cuts and it heals and it repairs. Your body doesn't have to work that way. It works that way because God decrees it. So his creative power, the power of his decree, gave you life in the beginning and continues to give you life now. But all of that is nothing compared to the deepest and the truest sense that the psalmist means in verse 93 when he says, by your precepts you have given me life. Because just as his word spoke reality into being and sustains creation according to his eternal decree, it is by God's decree that he gives you spiritual life and calls you out of death out of spiritual death into spiritual life. He decreed your birth and he will decree your second birth into faith. By God's word, he calls you out of darkness into light, out of death into spiritual life. 
that is the deepest meaning when the psalmist says that by God's word you've given me life. Verse 94 then calls out to God a wonderful and profound cry. One that you ought to put in your pocket, keep it, uh, and call on God in the same way from time to time. Verse 94 calls to God, I am yours, save me. Think about that for a moment. He says, I am yours first. I am yours is the ground for his call out to God to save him. I am yours, therefore save me. That is how we ought to call out to God for salvation when we were lost. And yet, even now, day by day, as we call out to God, as we continue to need him to sustain us, And to sanctify us, there's no better platform to seek God's salvation than simply trusting in his promise, trusting that you belong to him. You see, you don't call out to God and then Christ goes to the cross and saves you. You call out to God trusting that Christ has died for your sins, that he has purchased your salvation at the cross. You call out to him in faith that his saving promises are for you. You don't do something or cry something or or express a need for something and then Christ goes and does it. You call upon him and you call upon him his name trusting that he has already done it for you. That's why when we preach the gospel, we don't preach that if you call on God, then he will die for your sins. We say, trust and believe that Christ died for your sins, that he was raised and purchased salvation for you. You come to him in faith and trust that he will save you because you belong to him. And why do you belong to him? Because, he, because Christ died for you. Because he died for your sins. And so your sins are forgiven. You come, in, you come to him in repentance and faith, knowing that you will be saved because Christ has made you his own. Because he has already paid the price for your sins. And he has already purchased a righteousness and a reward for you on your behalf. So if the psalmist has sought after God's precepts and he has sought after them because God has given him new life and a heart to seek salvation, he belongs to God in faith. The final verse is a coda that expounds on the eternal sovereignty and perfection of God. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The world is changeable, and to be changeable is to be imperfect, and uh, the world is fallible. God is immutable, perfect, and sovereign. The psalmist has looked at all creation, and he has considered every other source, possible source of goodness, hope, protection, wealth, and delight that the world has to offer. There's a limit 
to all of it. He's seen a limit. And what a limit means is that it's not infinite. It's finite. It's finite. And it is imperfect. And yet the perfection of God is exceedingly broad. And it encompasses all of creation. It is exceedingly broad. That is, its breadth exceeds measurement. It is not just proportionately large. Like the sun, you know, you've seen those illustrations of the planets and how, how much bigger the sun is than, uh, than uh, the, the planets or the moon. And they look like, you know, some of them, Pluto looks like a little dot next to the sun. That's, that, that's not the comparison. It is not that God's, uh, that, that God's perfection is proportionately vastly larger. It's infinite. It is infinite. There is no uh, comparison. The sin and the misery of the world is great. It is. And it's terrible. But God's sovereignty to ordain and direct the world according to his perfect purposes, it is infinitely greater than Anything that the world contains. The demands of the law, they are overwhelming. And your sin and your guilt are terrible as violators of his commandments. And yet God's grace is infinitely greater than that. For the psalmist to contemplate the decrees of God is a delight, even in affliction. It is life and renewal. And it is salvation. Of course, it is no such thing for those who do not know God. Yet the promise of the gospel is that for all the miserable guilt of your sin, it is never greater than the grace of God or the power of the risen Christ to forgive. And if you come to Christ in faith, believing that he died for your sins, trusting in his salvation, then you can come to him with the confidence of the psalmist upon the same foundation. I am yours. Save me. I believe that Christ has died for my sins, that he was raised on the third day, and that he reigns on high at the right hand of the throne of God. And the power of the Spirit that made the world, that sustains the world, that made you and gave you life, that same power will give you new life in Christ, freedom from sin, and the blessing of eternal life together with him. That's the power of the gospel. Is the power of the creating and sustaining and saving work of our God. Amen.